Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Internet Marketing. I'm here with Claire Croft and Phil Lewis of Corporate Punk. Welcome to the podcast, Claire and Phil. Good morning. Good morning to you both. So I'd like to know, as I just noted a moment ago, a little bit more about you both and your mission at Corporate Punk. Who wants to start? So our mission at Corporate Punk is very simple, which is help organizations get the change that they need up and running very quickly usually within three weeks. And the reason that that's our mission is because invariably, when we get involved in organizations or parts of organizations, whether it's marketing, whether it's R&D, whether it's innovation, whether it's operational, whatever part of the organization we're getting involved with, or whether it's more cross-cutting across a leadership team, usually change is stalled. And the reason that change is stalled is because organizations are very good at trying to do change to people rather than with people, which means they don't co-opt people into the change that they're looking to make in the right ways. They don't get their people working together in the right ways. They don't structure what they're trying to do to bring the best out of their people. We can talk about all that more if, if helpful. But ultimately, we're the people that you call. Usually, when you're trying to do something, you might be running a marketing department and getting wanting to get people working more collaboratively and creatively, for example, and you've run aground. And you don't know quite why you've run aground, but you know you need to quickly sort that situation out. And the reason the business came about, just to give you a little bit of a flavor for that, is that, well, Claire will talk about her own career background, which is very different to my own. But I'd spent the first 10 12 years of my career working in around marketing, mostly sort of st- strategy roles, really. And also, I'd done a bit of time in management consulting. And I realized that, not that this question necessarily popped into my head in quite the way I'm going to express it now, but I realized that I was ultimately far more interested in why people had the problems that they had than I was actually in the problems themselves. So, my life experience, but also my career experience has been, I get up every day and I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are smart, energetic, passionate, want to go into work and do the very best that they can. 
they're motivated to succeed not only for themselves but for their organizations and yet we seem to be incredibly good at building organizations that are less than the sum total of that human potential and i found myself thinking well why is that and then i also found myself thinking well hang on i work for consultancies and agencies and yet and I'm also surrounded by all these smart people here as well. And we don't seem to be making the impact that we should be making on clients who are struggling to get the best out of their people either. So, so all that kind of coalesced in the idea of a practice, which is ultimately centered on helping people work better together in service of organizational transformation. And that's been going for nearly 10 years now. And that is who we are and what we do. That's a great start and a good introduction to you. How about yourself, Claire? Could you talk to me a little bit about your background? Yeah, I haven't had as linear a career as Phil. Um, so I, what, what unites us is I have always been interested in human behaviour and why do people do the things that they do? Um, what, you know, the whole sort of nurture, nature-nurture debate. And that was from like a really young age. And I ended up doing psychology as a degree and at the time that I did my degree, there was a program on telly called Cracker, which I don't know if you'll remember, it was Robbie Coltrane was played a, a criminal psychologist, Fitz. And I just became absolutely fascinated by the criminal mind and why people turn to create such strange acts. So I then followed a path into criminal psychology and worked in bail hostels in the centre of Leeds, which was an education in itself. And then I, when I graduated, I went and worked at Wakefield Prison in the psychology department there, which is a Cate high security prison full of rapists, murderers, serial killers, you know, people you want to hang out with. And in that experience, I, I learned just how complicated it is to be a human being and how how multifaceted we are and how weirdly and you know a lot of people look at me like I'm mad when I say this what I really came to understand is everybody is guided by a positive intent in their life it's actually just the execution that goes wrong so even the most you know horrendous of crimes the individual has a positive intent behind it but they execute it in ways that society doesn't understand and, you know, accept. And, and I loved it. I had a great time, worked with, you know, some of the, you know, our country's best known serial killers. And, but it was a, one of those situations where I realized the system actually doesn't set us up to rehabilitate those kinds of criminals. And, and I was young and I was full of morals and I just couldn't keep doing it. So I, I left and made the very logical move into marketing, uh, aka needed a job and needed some money. So, and, and this came up. So I wasn't very purposeful in my move into marketing. But equally, you know, marketing is all about how do you inspire behavior change, behavior change that brands want you to adopt. And then I, I spent a lot of time client side, but felt like a round peg in a square hole because I, I love strategy. I love creativity. And there was too many spreadsheets client side. And so I moved agency side and then had a really positive long career working in agencies, creative agencies, which is where I met Phil. And when I, I got very ill in 2011, which, you know, was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because 
I had to be off work for quite some time and it gave me the headspace to go, what do you really want to do with your life, Claire? And what I realized is the bit of my work that I loved was the bringing together of teams to help them achieve something they didn't think was possible, to really problem solve together, creatively think together and and unlock their potential, right? To be brilliant in their work. And that's what then led me to go, actually, I want to help more people do this and have this um, experience of work where you really feel like you're working at your best. And that's where what led me to coaching. And then that's what's led me to working with fellow corporate punk. Is there anything that helped you have that realisation about that desire to kind of support teams? Yeah, it's when you step out of something. I think, you know, I used to think what I really loved was writing PowerPoint presentations for clients to tell them how they could solve their marketing challenges. And then what I missed, though, when I was away from work was my interaction with people. It wasn't the work. It was that sitting with somebody, you know, like a member of my team and then going, I've got no idea how to solve this problem for Great Ormond Street or, you know, or for the National Trust. And then just coaching it out of them, what they, they did have the answer. They knew what needed to be done, but they couldn't access it and just drawing that ability out of them and, and then helping them come together with other people that they needed to make it possible and helping them see how do you help others contribute to this process. And I, I loved that whole experience of people starting from a position of not knowing how they would work together well or, or even if they had the same agenda. And through a process of constructive dialogue, through constructive challenge, getting to that outcome. And that's what my... It sounds a bit, you know, woolly, but that's what my heart really missed when I wasn't at work. It didn't miss the, you know, the bifold <laughs> DM pack that was going out to ad card customers, you know. So it, it it was it was the missing. It was being away for something that made me realise what I what I needed. Yeah. When you went from that transition of working in a prison and working with criminals to working in marketing, oh. what was that transition like? Worrying similarities. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it it really helped me because obviously a, a prison is a highly conflict ridden, um, right. charged environment, right? You know, people can kick off as soon as say good morning to you. What it really helped me to do is to go into into marketing and realise that you know, everybody's having their own unique experience of this work. We think we work together. We think we're doing the same thing in the service of the same outcome, but we're not. And all the sort of passive aggressive negative politics that I I quickly could see were present, I felt comfortable navigating because I knew that actually it's just about we're, we're, we're existing in different realities here, but we think we're in the same reality. Um, and I used to have to think on my feet a lot in the prison to negate people reacting badly or, you know, becoming over, overly charged in their sort of energy. And, and so it, it helped me to be really calm in conversations with people. I also had no fear of authority because right. if, you, if you can sit and talk to a serial killer, I'm not really that fussed about sitting and talking to a CEO. And I think... I was able to get involved in conversations just through the naivety of I didn't really get that there was a 
there is a there were rules of how one engages you yeah. know it's like up the chain i would just have chats and yeah. and i was just i was so interested to know what everybody was thinking about what was the work that needed to be done here what was everybody's perspectives and then i could work out our oh, case okay, so of what do i need to do and you know i it was a, it was difficult at times because you know you sort of the thing that was really hard for me was my god guys this is just marketing nobody's actually going to die you know i'd spent my my time in an environment where people had died as a result of the issues and challenges people were facing and and i found it hard that i couldn't i couldn't sort of accept why can't you have perspective about the relative mm. importance of what it is we're doing so i always talk to people about passionate pragmatism we should absolutely be passionate about the work we're doing but let's be pragmatic at the same time yeah and as you were talking through a little bit of your background there, I, I want to know a little bit more about your story and how you ended up both meeting. Uh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of that conversation, just given <laughs> your different backgrounds and what you've shared so far. So uh, does one of you want to talk through just that that aspect of how you met well, and what that conversation was like? Go on, Phil, yeah. you shared the glorious moment. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it was such a weird trajectory in one sense because I'd, I joined this particular agency that it became entirely apparent to me within about five working days was completely the wrong move. I don't want to speak ill of it, but it just, it's just I'm not wired for the corporate end of anything, potentially. So I joined in this sort of strategy role that I'd kind of taken on slightly a whim for all sorts of reasons and, and ended up sort of quite senior in this department. And then the sort of set of circumstances met meant that Claire and I and another guy ended up effectively kind of co-leading this this group of, I think, about 15, 20 people, but I forget the number. And, you know, I always admired Claire in terms of her ability to sort of walk into a space and find the right words to get things moving in the right way in often some very sensitive political situations. Because I'm, again... <laughs> I wouldn't describe myself necessarily as a bull in the china shop. I think I'd like to think I'm a bit more sensitive than that, but there can be a degree of, well, I'm a pretty direct character, I suppose, by most people's standards. So anyway, we we got to know each other that way over the course of probably about 12 months. But, and I'd always, I'd always been very impressed by it, but I wouldn't have described us as friends. We were colleagues and, you know, she was somebody that I, that I had a lot of time for. And then, Claire went off and did her own thing and got qualified as a coach. And I went off and had this disastrous experience setting up a consultancy, which is a story in its own right, you know, but but I'd set up in business and then it ended up in completely the wrong business partnership and ended up getting absolutely shafted in, in the course of that relationship. And that was very bruising. But ultimately you know, a bit like Claire said about getting ill, the best thing that I think has happened to me in my career in the end, was everything came from that. It was the thing in the end that kind of gave me the conviction to go and do um, what, what I am, what we do now. Anyway, so then set corporate punk up and then thought, oh, Claire's working as a coach. That might be interesting to explore. And we started, you know, nearly a decade ago and just Claire came on board to do a couple of projects. And very, very quickly, it became very obvious to me that we were we were able to get somewhere together in conversations that we weren't necessarily going to be able to get 
too individually. And then over time, what happened was the relationship kind of coalesced then around that that chemistry, that ability to do the kind of the, the work that we're both interested in doing. We have it turned out we have a set of values that are almost completely identical which we think is essential to the underpinning of any successful working relationship, but particularly business partnerships. You have to care about the same stuff, you know. And then over time, it's, it just it turned from being kind of Claire coming on board to help out to Claire being the partner in the business that she is today. And so it all happened kind of, if you'd said to me 10 years ago, this, you know, Claire's going to end up being your business partner a decade later, and you're going to have ended up doing you know, multi-award winning work all around the world together. It laughed in your face, to be quite honest. And I'm sure she'd say the same thing. Yeah. But it's, it's an object lesson in actually sort of two people who do have values in common, who, you know, life had kind of thrown apart and then we'd found a way to work together. It actually turned out the working relationship was a very, very fruitful one when it was plucked out of that particular environment in which we'd met, you know, where it wasn't not fruitful, but the environment was never going to like to flourish in the way that it's flourished since. You're both really interested in behavior and you've talked there about having shared values, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have shared behaviors. So uh, do you find yourself, <laughs> do you have, do you find yourself, um, yeah, how do you find yourself approaching differences of opinion? Working, working in a decade together in business is not for everyone. It's tough. I'm sure there have been challenging moments. Um, talk me through them. How do you approach when you have those differences of opinion and finding common ground, really? Well, the first thing that's so important is absolute unwavering respect for each other. So anything that comes up in our business, there's never, ever any question over A, the intent behind what's, you know, what the person is bringing to the conversation. And then secondly, Phil and I, I, I hope this is all right to say, Phil, but we are borderline neurotic on our desire to do the right thing for our mm -hmm. clients, right? It, it is both our greatest strength and our biggest Achilles heel because it is so, in, we're almost like, we almost take the medic code of first do no harm, you know, yeah. completely to heart. So when you know that a challenge is being brought to you from somebody you really, really respect, so you kind of enter it going, they're asking this for a reason right? They're not just being an ass mm. about something. And secondly of all, you know that it will be being motivated by a desire to get to the best possible outcome for the client. That I feel, I don't know what you think, Phil, really helps you to lean into whatever it is that's coming up because it feels really grounded and purposeful. You know, there is a reason why we're about to have this difficult conversation. And then I think what also helps us is that we are infinitely curious individuals. And so if, if Phil poses a challenge to me about how I'm thinking about something, then I want to know why does he think differently to me, right? So, it, and I think he's the same. So I don't take it as him saying, I'm not good enough. Mm. I don't experience it as a challenge to my capability. I experience it as a, he wants to explore, go exploring this with me um, because he's seeing something I'm not seeing. And again, that really, really helps me lean in. The way we practically do it is we will always say, right, I want to talk about this for this reason. So from the outset, we know why we're having the conversation. 
So it doesn't just, we don't just sort of land challenges on one another. There's always a context as to why we're about to have it. And then beyond that, Phil, I'd be interested to know what you think. But I struggle to decode our behaviours any further because I think coming from the background we came from, discussion, debate, exploration is almost hardwired into us as a conversational capability. So I'm not, I'm never like consciously thinking about what should I say next to get the outcome I want. I'm just in the, I'm in the moment with Phil having this debate, having this exploration. So I'm, I struggle beyond what I've just shared with you to decode myself further. What, what do you think, Phil? I would say, I would say yes to all of the above. I mean, the only two things that I would add, just to say to your last point, I think that, you know, somebody asked me the other day what, what made me interesting and useful as a consultant. They asked me that question. And I said, thought about it for a second, and I thought, I don't really care about being right. And, and I, I genuinely don't think I do, certainly a lot in the conversations that Claire and I have. I don't care about being right. What I care about is, are we getting somewhere together we couldn't get otherwise? And is the and is the contribution that I'm making of some service in that context. So I think as soon as you, if you can remain grounded in your own, um, and so I feel very, I guess, I guess this is what years and years of doing this and having suffered a lot of knocks. And if we ever, probably not one for this podcast, but you know, the, the early years of corporate punk were very, very challenging. It's been really hard to make this business work over the, over the time that we've done it less so, Less so now, although we have, you know, like all small businesses, we have our, our, our ups and our downs. But, but certainly in the early years, it was really tough. But when you've weathered a lot of that, and then when you've weathered, you know, a lot of challenging client situations, and when you've weathered, you know, a couple of economic storms and everything else, you find yourself and you kind of go, well, I, I do have a baseline trust in my own competency. And I think Claire has a baseline trust in her own competency. And ultimately, we're not really looking to each other for that to be validated. What we're looking to each other for is support and contribution in terms of trying to do the work that, that we're doing. And I think the second thing is that I would say on top of that, that, um, that there's a shared commitment to excellence as well. And, and we both care. Claire was talking about our neuroses before, mm. which is we joke about it a lot. It is actually quite crippling from time to time. Cause we will, we do, we are both chronic overthinkers. Um, but, but when we're talking about getting, we're talking about doing something, we want to do it well, really, really well for our clients and for ourselves. And I personally accept about excellence that it isn't an easy thing to achieve. Mm-hmm. It is going to be, it is going to require dissent, it is going to require disagreement, it is going to require. Um, some blind alleys you get to turn down from time to time and so on. And I'm really comfortable with that for the most part as well. So I think all of the things we just talked about, I think we have a, you know, I wouldn't say we have a, I wouldn't say we have a conflict free business partnership. I would say we have a business partnership in which we do our level best to manage conflict in extremely healthy ways mm-hmm. in service of the work that we're trying to do. So this skill or ability to be comfortable in not having to be right. And when you're in receipt of feedback, 
not uh, having an emotional reaction to it and actually be able to reflect on it and question yourself as to uh, why you're receiving it and what the other person's intent is. Not everyone possesses that skill or perhaps I don't think that they do. So mm. for, you, for you both, what I'm interested in is do you think that's a characteristic that you've both had um, or is it a skill that you've developed over time or is it both? I think it's a bit of both, if I'm honest. I think for me, how I was raised was to kind of be open-minded to everybody's points of view in this world because that's how we get to you know I was raised to believe that's how you get to brilliant outcomes is by being willing to listen so I had this sort of I have a belief system that underpins how I navigate it the thing I would say is um it's not about being comfortable with it it's about being comfortable with the fact that it is uncomfortable, right? Because it, it is hard to engage in challenging conversation and conflict conversation. But what I think we've come to learn and understand um, over the years is it's, it's necessary to get to better outcomes. You know, avoiding and ignoring challenging conflict is not in service of excellence, is not in service of a positive working relationship. So you kind of, the comfort comes from knowing it's going to lead to something better, but it is still really uncomfortable sometimes to have a conversation with someone, even if I'm talking to Phil, and I know he doesn't feel the need to be right. I know he trusts why... I'm um, bringing something to him is with a good intent and for good reason. We still have this, I think, unwitting needs and concern as humans, like what if I upset them? And it's not about them. It's about us because we like to be liked. You know, conflict and challenge can pose a threat to belonging. What if I get it wrong and they reject me and we don't like being rejected as people? But what we've seen in our business is, a breakthrough comes in helping people to navigate conflict and um, challenge when you help people to see that we are all occupying our own version of reality. And where where people normally are operating from a place is we've gone through exactly the same experience and that's why I'm right and you're wrong. You must be able to see that. And what we help people to do is understand that complexity of the human experience and help them to therefore evaluate themselves and the contribution they've made to a situation and then really have a, a desire for to offer empathy and understanding towards the other person and get curious about finding out their reality. Because if you can get curious, you can find out where this thing has gone awry. But if you talk at someone, you shut them down. Yeah, I would say on top of that that... I mean, there is a there's a brilliant thing in um, apparently in Buddhist monasteries, right? Uh, monks will sit and meditate on hard stone floors for hours, and if if they slump over or if they start to moan with the pain of it, they get birched, right? And the reason why this is done as a practice is what it's doing is it's teaching the monks to put distance between themselves and the discomfort. And it seems to me that that's the job, to Claire's point. It's like, you know, it's really easy for us to sit on a podcast like this and talk about a high-functioning business partnership and talk about 
techniques for conflict management and everything else. But that point about getting comfortable being uncomfortable is actually absolutely central. I care deeply what Claire thinks, not just about what Claire thinks about a problem, but also what Claire thinks about me as a human being, right? And there there are and there have been times when I have to acknowledge that that is a dynamic going on for me in a conversation and kind of be aware that it's there and observe it without letting it unduly get in the way of the discussion that needs to happen. Now, if it's, it's, and Claire linked it back to our work, and I just want to do that more explicitly. If we are talking about organizational change, or we're talking about a lot of our change work orients around getting organizations good with being more collaborative, more creative, more innovative. We do a lot of work with marketing R&D innovation teams where those behaviors either haven't been there or have stalled. The stuff that we're talking about here, about how do you get good at conflict? How do you navigate through discomfort? All of that stuff, organizations, A, pay very little attention to, in general, in both how they think, how they work in day-to-day and how they train their people, but secondly, are absolutely central to the development of the behaviours that they're seeking. So you don't get great organisational creativity or innovation, for example, by teaching people the six thinking hats of Edward de Bono or by teaching them, you know, three techniques out of what if sticky wisdom book for 11 12 years ago don't get me wrong those things are incredibly useful but if you really want to unlock organizational creativity and you really change how people work you've got to start training them in stuff like conflict management and i've often said if i had my time again i could found a business school there's two things i'd teach the first thing is communication oral communication how do we speak to each other because it's not taught, and it is actually the central skill as far as I can see it in business. All business is just conversations between people. And secondly, I would teach conflict. I would teach how do we get good at entering what my old chairman used to call the zone of uncomfortable conversations. If we can get good at those things, actually, and acknowledge separate realities, learn to demonstrate a degree of empathy, maintain our ability to assert all those sorts of things, everything else tends to rocket forward on the back of it, you know? The zone of uncomfortable conversations is one of those things that I just noted down is a perfect book name or podcast name. It's just the perfect <laughs> title for something. So is that what you focus on when you go into business? I'd like to know a little bit more now, speaking practically, you can use examples of businesses that you've worked with if it, if it helps. But talk to me about your approach. So a business contacts you, um, I don't know, how do you qualify them? And what are some of the first things that you do? When a business contacts us usually it's because i think as i mentioned at the outset they're they're trying to get to a desired future state and they're failing to get there to give you a very practical example of that we were contacted by a cmo of a very large financial services business a few years ago and in effect he said we've been trying to change how we work so that our people can be more strategic, more collaborative, more creative. And we've been trying to do it for two years and we've got nowhere. And I've got about six months here to demonstrate change, to demonstrate something meaningful can be done about it. And and I need your help. What would you do? So we keep things super simple. There's only about four things you can buy from us. 
And the first is a diagnostic program called the Change Index. What the Change Index basically does is it looks at how well your people are capable of working together, right? That's fundamentally what it looks at. Um, And we call it the Change Index because ultimately change is the application. So in other words, you need people to work well together when you're trying to do something different, almost more than you need to work well together at any other time, right? So, but it looks at nine different attributes of organizational culture, all pointing in the direction of how well are people working together in service of a desired outcome. And that gives a lot of data points, and that can be sliced and diced by, you know, tenure, hierarchy, uh, geographical location, department, and so on. And you run a diagnostic like that and you start talking to people around an organization and you very, very quickly get a sense of what are the real, not only blockers to the kind of performance that that CEO is looking for. So to collaboration, to creativity, to innovation, you get a sense of that very quickly. You also get a sense of what the bridges are as well, because, you know, no organization is doing everything badly. And a lot of the time what we actually ignore are the things that we naturally do well, right? So we plug something like that into a business. And then the job is get together with a senior team or a senior leader, usually a team, and go, right, this is what the data is telling us. Where do we start? So in the case of that example that um, I gave you before, we basically said, in the nicest possible way, we're going to need to rip it all up and start again here. And we can't spend the next two years pushing adjectives around on paper. What we need to do, if we're going to get your people to work together more collaboratively, more creatively, more innovatively, what we need to do is actually start that process by getting them to do it. So let's take one small team in one corner of the organization on one project and let's stand them up to do a piece of work over three months in the way that you would want that work to be done across the piece going forward. And we know from the data that there's going to be these two or three things that they're struggling with. Conflict is definitely one of them, but it also might be, for example, finding the space and time to do the work properly. So then coaching, consulting, training to address those specific barriers and bridges with that small team. We did that for three months. The results were remarkable. Not everything went well, never does. But the results were absolutely remarkable. They suddenly were finding that they could, I think they, they shipped, they managed to reduce their time to ship a new sort of customer program out from about 12 weeks to five or something. And they'd had about six, seven more ideas for new things they could be doing than they normally do. I mean, there was all sorts of really interesting data kind of came out of it, even just that first pilot project. And then the next thing that you buy from us beyond the change index and strategy is that ongoing implementation support. So then we work with clients to work out, well, okay, how do we scale what we're now doing, right? So if we've started in one corner of the organizations we did with them, which is not always the case, by the way, there's different ways we start, but let's just give you an example. In this case, it was how do we scale? And then you're working with both leadership teams and different parts of, in this case, a 200, 250 strong organization to coach, consult, train around those barriers, around those blockers, and help people through very real-world practical experience um, start to get better at creating, collaborating, innovating, and so on. And we have a training program then that sits around all of that, which, you know, teaches them, 
do skills and creative thinking and we have a whole module on conflict and how do you manage conflict and and so on and in that case that program lasted for three years we wrapped it at the back end of last year it's gone forward for a load of awards this year and i think it's fair to say it was one of the most successful change programs that that organization had done in a couple of decades and widely recognized globally as being an example of actually how to do organizational change really really well and so for us it's about the challenges that come with that are about sometimes you actually just need to tell clients, A, start again and B, slow down because mm. <laughs> you can be efficient with everything but people. But if we want to, if we want to see genuine change in an organization, we have to be very practical about how we do it. We have to be grounded in a real understanding of what the actual psychological, emotional, other kinds of barriers are, practical barriers to embracing the, you know, embracing healthy ways of working. And then we just have to be patient and work over time to to address those um, to address those those challenges. So that's that's how it works, I think, in the context of a classic client engagement. Clara, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things I really love about what ends up happening in our in our work is we we change a client's relationship with time mm-hmm. because when we start working with them. They've gone, they're invariably, they've gone, we need to change, we need this, and they've just got going. And what we help them to do is to stop and think. And pe- it's so weird to me, I mean, particularly within, you know, working with marketing and innovation departments, how devalued thinking has become as part of our work. It, it sort of frightens me on some level. It's action that's valued in the world of work. Right. But invariably, People leap to action and it's not the right action. And then the thing that, I mean, it always makes Phil laugh, like, because this is my little soapbox thing. Mm-hmm. So we haven't got time to think up front, but we've got all the time in the world to clear up the shit that ensues from getting things wrong and mm-hmm. doing the wrong things repeatedly, right? So what I love about what ends up happening in our work with clients is they, they over time, they realize that, taking time to think is what enables them to be faster so phil mentioned that slow down and it's slow down and think and then really fly you know we've sat in reviews with um clients and you know one woman said yep it's been great because we're just not used to this thinking process which is a mind-boggling statement (laughs) if you think about it right but i think indicative of many were cultures Thinking is not valued as work. Action is seen as work, but if, but that's the shift that needs to be made. If you want genuine transformative change, help your people think. Give them that space to think. And you can't tell people to just find some time to think. And that's what our work helps them do is experience the value of thinking. And then that's what allows it to, because we work on live projects, and that's what really then allows it to start to seep into the culture where you kind of go, people start to go, yeah, actually, why don't we spend some time on this up front and getting the right people together to talk about it, explore it. And let's get clear even on what problem it is we're trying, excuse me, what problem it is we're trying to solve in the first place. So breaking that down a little bit, as you said, it's 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 not a case of just telling people, hey, you need to give people time to think. There's more, yeah. there are practical um, there are practices that you need to put in place to help that mm. happen. What are some of those practices? 
So it's for us, it's really about um, bringing together, getting used to the idea that you need your talent to be fluid. So you need to be able to create an environment where the right people can come together on a project. Cross department, um, cross functional teams is at the heart of bringing in diverse views, diverse perspectives, um, different uh, experience and capability. So surround something first off with as good a breadth of views and perspectives and intelligence as you possibly can. And then what we teach them is um, it's called a plan on a page. Okay. And we get them to think through a project. What is the ambition for this project? What are the vital few objectives we're going to need to in- achieve in order to fulfill that in- ambition? And then what tasks are going to get us there? And it's an Excel spreadsheet that they work on. And it sounds so Janet and John, but what we're really doing in, you know, organizations like to fill stuff out. They like to see things on paper. And the single page plan fulfills that need. But what it takes to complete a single page plan that is going to get you the outcomes you really need for your business is the quality of discussion and thinking. So we will we will advocate that they spend the majority of their time up front on defining their ambition, having the challenging discussion and debate, tearing it apart, you know, asking what's even the simple thing of what is wrong with this? What are we not seeing? What could go wrong? Like permitting people to expect failure is a is another practical thing we help people to do to sort of lean into thinking based on where we're at right now what could go wrong with this and because failure is not a highly tolerated um quality within organizations either but what we advocate for is think about failing up front expect it and look at where you're at and now now see what is it you've not considered so it's it's about a simple framework with a, a couple of really important conversational moments in the creation of that plan that allows people to start to really work differently together. And and the real transformation comes through experience of, of working on live projects. Like we are not interested in teaching in the abstract. It just doesn't work. You know, it's like when you hoist people out of a system, send them on a leadership course and then pop them back into that system. It's really hard to bring to bear what everything you've learned because there was no contextual um, evaluation of the learning. You know, so we we work in the business, <laughs> working on the work of the business. And that's what helps them to really start to experience it. And then and then we step away because they've learned the skills for themselves and they want it. You know, one of the things we measure is how people are feeling about change. And what we regularly see is uh, as the program evolves, as the work that we're doing with them evolves, their comfort with change, their enjoyment of change rockets because they're having more fruitful discussion. They're working with different perspectives. They're not just telling themselves the same old story, you know? If there's a challenge that comes with it, though, Scott, I would say it's in, it's the age-old you know, give someone a fishing rod versus give them a fish, right? And the challenge that comes with it is learning to do anything is really, really hard. So learning to embrace conflict, 
you know, is incredibly difficult, particularly in working cultures where conflict is often suppressed or managed in extremely specific ways. Learning to collaboratively problem solve where you actually have to sit with a problem for a long time is really uncomfortable. And actually, one of the things that can really surprise people when they start doing this kind of work is just how bad the outputs can be in the first instance. You know, they've, they've put two days into something and then they end up with something that they sort of recognize isn't very good, you know. And you're like, it's fair enough it's not very good, but not very good is actually, back to my earlier point about being comfortable not being right sometimes not very good is actually the stepping stone you need towards good you know <laughs> and good is the stepping stone you need towards great and so on so it's like what what happens with this kind of work sometimes is it's a sort of hold the line hold the line hold the line you know so you you can be in a situation where um a lot of the organizational culture the ways people are conditioned to think in businesses the ways that they're conditioned to work in businesses, the incentives in businesses, both social and financial, and and in, in some sense their own um, personal comfort levels as well, and, what, and, and their own associations of themselves as a competent professional, all of those things can be quite challenged in the short term because you're basically going, you're going to have to start learning something that isn't particularly familiar to you here. And, and what we try and do is, is not present ourselves as gurus in that situation, but sit there and go, we are people who struggle with this too and have struggled with this too. And we're on the same path too. And we may be a little bit further down the path in some senses than, than, than others are. And here is the insight that we've learned from that. But it's about empathy again for the individuals concerned at the same time as, you know, maintaining a sort of um, pretty assertive belief around, actually, if we do this, we're going to get to somewhere better in the end. This touches on something I'm really curious about because you've talked about how you work with senior leaders, maybe CEOs or people in leadership positions, but we haven't really talked much from the team's perspective. And I'm thinking here that if I was told tomorrow that a third party is going to come into our business and help like make change or, you know, any form of external party coming in to analyze or make change. I've been there before. Everyone reacts differently. Some people are very, very uncomfortable with that. Mm. So it sounds like Mm. this aspect of humility um, is really important. And I'm just curious, yeah, how do you get this? trust and this buy-in from teams that you're working with well i mean i think the most important thing is is we're not there to create the change we're there to stand by the side of the people in that organization and support them as they create change for themselves and so we're really we're really focused on making sure people understand that we're not there to land and expand in the way that you know other big consultancies do and that our intent is to help them become the enablers of change in their organization and that we are very keen to leave as soon as possible. And weirdly, as soon as you say to people, we're not here to do the change to you, 
they really calm down. And when they understand that our intent is to support them and help them build the skills, build the capability, build the comfort, they really start to lean in. I mean, you know, when people sit in a room with Phil and I, it doesn't take much for them to realize pretty quickly that we, we're not like other change consultants. You know, we are much more like coaches in a way in terms of our, not the work we do, but the, the philosophy that we bring to it. You know, we, we absolutely fundamentally believe that any, anyone we work with within an, an organization has got it within them to be the enablers of change in their organization. Our, all we're trying to do is help them bring that out in themselves. And we really normalize the pain of change. We don't shy away. We don't make it seem like, you know, unicorns and fluffy clouds. Like we lean into the fact that what it is to experience change as humans. We normalize the fact that actually you've probably gone through a lot of change and it's been really difficult and it's been actually potentially sometimes, you know, traumatic. And some of the conversations we get into with people right from the outset, we help them feel comfortable to share their experience of change, to share their anxieties, to share their worries. And so that's out in the open from the outset. We're working with the concerns. We're working with the the challenges they think they're going to experience. So rather than waiting for it to bubble up, when we're doing the work, we just start having the conversation. So a lot of our work starts with sessions that talk about what it is to go through change in the world of work, what it is to go through change as a human. And that, I think, is a fundamentally different experience to working with other professionals who do the sort of work that we do. You know, That and very, very clear contracting as well. I mean, just the other thing to say mm-hmm. is whenever we're working with groups, we make it very, very clear the basis on which we're working with them. And that basis is we're not going to be reporting back on what goes on in that group, usually anything other than a theme level. So, so you know, what we don't, we can't be having a situation is, you know, well, John said X and Janet said Y. You know, that sort of behaviour is just really, really unacceptable because again you know we come at it from a place of just understanding people have got mortgages to pay you know the most human behavior even the most appalling behavior you see at work sometimes usually has very simple explanations you know and people are just doing what they deem necessary to survive in a world that feels completely indifferent to their survival a lot of the time so it's like as soon as you start to just acknowledge that people do feel vulnerable and insecure at work, and then you start to make commitments to them that don't necessarily call that out in the way that I've just called it out, but but acknowledge that in the sense of going, we understand that some of the conversations we have are going to be quite sensitive. We understand also that some of the stuff we're going to explore might be quite challenging. We also understand that some of the stuff you might do, you wouldn't necessarily want sharing because you're not going to feel it's that good you know, in the short term. Um, and we start from that position, then, and we can make ourselves a bit vulnerable sometimes as well, you know, in terms of talking about our own backgrounds and everything else. Over time, the trust issue tends to be a, a non-issue at all. But yeah, I mean, as soon as you say consultant, Scott, you know, 
as soon as you use word like that, you've immediately got a category issue you have to overcome. And so that's our approach. I can tell that I could talk to you for hours on these various topics, but we're coming towards the end of our time together. So before I let you go, if people do want to learn more about you both and corporate punk and extend the conversation on this topic, where can they find you? We have a website, which is corporatepunk.com. We have a newsletter as well, which might be worth also having a look at. So every Tuesday, we publish something called Small Change, which you can sign up for at corporatepunk.com. And small change, the idea is um, two or three paragraphs of a single theme each week. You can read it in about two minutes flat. And it is practical, tangible advice for leaders and other people who are interested in the kind of topics we've been talking about today and are interested in you know, helping their people work differently together in service of better organizational outcomes. So both of those corporatepunk.com and look at small change as well which you can sign up for on the website both of those are good places to start Uh, i've learned a lot it's been fascinating you provided some great advice links to everything we've discussed today will be in the show notes and for now this has been the internet marketing podcast take care Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.